This is episode seven with Emma Yang, the founder of Timeless. Welcome to Asian Tech Leaders. My name is Justin Peng, and each week we share insights from Asian tech leaders to help inspire and guide you to reach your full potential. Thanks for spending some time with me today, and let's get started. Emma Yang is a founder of Timeless, a mobile app that helps Alzheimer's patients stay engaged and connected to loved ones. In September 2017, Timeless was selected as the winner of the MIT Solve Brain Health Challenge and designated as one of the 38 solvers out of nearly 1,000 solutions from 103 countries. Most recently, Emma was named the grand prize winner of the Women's Startup Challenge hosted by Women Who Tech and Google. On this episode, I chat with Emma about her transition from Hong Kong to New York, the role that her parents had in her upbringing, and the challenges that she faced raising money as a 13-year-old. Hope you enjoy this episode, and let's get started. Hi, Emma. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to have you on the show today. Um, You know, I originally heard about Timeless, I'd say, a year and a half ago when I was in New York. Um, and the work that you're doing, um, using a mobile app to help, uh, Alzheimer's patients really resonated with me because my father, um, he lived with dementia for about seven years mm-hmm. and has really been, been inspired by all the work that you've been doing. So I just want to start off by saying thank you for the work that you've been doing. Um, looking forward to the conversation today. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'd actually like to start with something I read in your bio, not about Timeless, but more about you personally. And uh, I saw that you are a self-proclaimed introvert. And for me, this really resonates because I'm I'm reading the uh, Susan Cain book right now, Quiet, about uh-huh. the power of introverts. Yeah. And um, was wondering why do you feel like you're introvert and at what point did you kind of make this... Um, proclamation that you know you're you're an introvert and not an ambivert or an extrovert yeah I mean I was like growing up I was always like a really shy kid like my parents actually remember my parents would actually keep track of the times that I talked first instead of someone talked to me and I kind of like said one word and so I feel like over time like my parents put me through like debate which I actually really loved I really fell in love with kind of talking with other my peers and kind of presenting an argument but before that I was really like kind of really quiet and I really talked a lot and I think that over time I've opened up especially because you know after I came to New York I went to um, the school I'm at right now and that really encouraged me you know through more discussion-based learning to kind of really voice my opinion in class and really participate Mm. but it's something that I've had, had to like kind of grow through I still think I'm an introvert but kind of I've kind of overcome or I guess like become more comfortable with like speaking my mind. Um, but I'm not one of those people who can like talk for like age and they just like have company all the time. But I still think that like it's something that's changed um, and just developed as I've gotten older. But I still think that like in general, I'm still mm. an introvert. So in terms of downtime or what you consider rest and relaxation, what do you do to actually recharge and, and refresh yourself? Usually probably like at home, like, on my own like a lot of the time like during school like if I have a lot of classes afterwards I'll usually be like sitting at the back of a library like alone like I don't really like a lot of my friends will go out and like talk to other people and I guess like that's like 
their thing but like for me it's really about like being alone like in my own space so yeah so do you like reading journaling kind of being in your your own head to some degree yeah i mean kind of just uh, you know reading on my own or like you know surfing the internet on my own but like i know it's weird that i've never was like a daily writing person but like i still like really enjoy writing like i wrote for quiet revolution which is susan kane's kind of like online presence and so i think like writing was something that i've been into like since i was really young like all the way until now i still you know write on a regular basis um but yeah it's really for me about like you know being on my own account, looking at my own thoughts and seeing where I am right now. That's great. And obviously, as you started your own company and um, you're get, becoming much more of a public figure, you've learned to to embrace these opportunities to speak in, in bigger forms. And it wouldn't seem like you're an introvert or afraid of speaking in public at all. Yeah, I mean, it's actually kind of weird because I feel like I'm more comfortable speaking to like a lot of people rather than like I'm speaking to, like a room of 20. Mm. Um, I don't know. but I guess that's kind of a skill that you develop as you do it more because I've kind of given presentations and talks at like a lot of big spaces like now. And so I guess like over time, I kind of learned to become comfortable with that. So it's definitely a learning process mm. for me. So what's the largest audience that you've spoken to? I don't know, actually. I think it's about like a thousand people. Yeah. Um, I know that my TED talk was about like a thousand people. And then I also, I think the other biggest one would have been in Dubai when I was at the uh, Global Education and Skills Forum. So yeah, I think so. Cool. And you kind of mentioned this earlier of like your transition to um, to, to North America and, and how your your parents got you to, to be part of a debate class to, to help strengthen that skill of public speaking and mm -hmm. having a point of view. Um, could you share a little bit more about your background? Um, so you were born in Hong Kong, and then um, could you just share a little bit more about your transition to North America? Yeah, so I was born in Hong Kong on my mom's side. Um, I'm 100% ethnically Chinese, but then my mom's side was actually from Vietnam, and then my dad's side's from Indonesia. Um, and so I was really, I really grew up in like this multicultural uh, environment, not just Chinese, but a lot through food actually, kind of learning about different cultures and different sides of my family. Um, and then I moved to New York when I was around uh, 10 years old. It was right before sixth grade. Um, and I've been living here ever since. Wow. Yeah, I remember reading in um, one of your blog posts saying that sometimes you feel like chopped up piece, chopped into, chopped up into pieces like a celery stick and dipped into many different sauces. Yeah. And that was your way to describe your, your yeah. offering or your background. Interesting, I actually wrote that right before I moved to New York. Um, uh, I was around like 10 at the time. So I think at that time, because I would spend most of my time in Hong Kong, and then I would, um, I guess like twice every three years about, I would go to Atlanta, where my mom's family is, mm. and then we'd experience this whole like, you know, Chinese culture, but also like Vietnamese food a lot at home with family, with cousins and stuff. And so I feel like I would be jumping across these two cultures. And so I think that's like a pretty unique experience that I had growing up. I mean, I've been going to Atlanta from Hong Kong when I was living there since I was like six months old. And so it's something that like became really part of my life. And actually my classmates knew me for like always being the one that went to the US over like winter break. So, yeah. So it was a transition to the U.S. and New York in particular. Was that pretty smooth because you'd been traveling so much? Or when you actually moved here at the age of 10, was it quite a, a shock saying, you know, this is your new home? Uh, I mean, I think that 
I had mostly been spending time like at in my relatives' homes when I went to the U.S. I never really came to New York City. I think I came as a tourist like twice or three times before I moved here. And so I think the biggest jump really was switching schools because the Hong Kong kind of education, like the Asian education and um, the American education is like so different now um, and it has been for a long time. I mean, here, when I came here, I was really surprised by how much I had the opportunity to talk during class because I think, you know, traditionally we see like education is like teachers standing from the room kind of just kind of talking. And I went to an international school. So it was kind of a mix between like the Hong Kong education and like a British system. But I mean, still, I, I found a sense of like the teacher really asking us what we thought about something rather than like, what did you read in the book? Um, and I think that's what really developed my interest in kind of making my own point of view and taking action on my opinions. Um, and so I think that was really the biggest transition for me. Mm -hmm. And was that a struggle at the beginning or was it more about just practicing and eventually getting comfortable with that? Yeah, I think it was definitely difficult for me to grapple with the con like the kind of the mindset in the beginning and especially because, you know, my school is actually kind of liberal arts oriented. So the English uh, you know, education here was uh, like really different and far ahead of what I had experienced in Hong Kong. So I think in the beginning that was kind of a struggle, but then I think I eventually like I had really supportive teachers who helped me a lot. So I was able to catch up eventually, but I think it was really just the difference between kind of the teachers here really asking your opinion and saying like, have a debate about this rather than kind of traditionally, I mean, I was younger, but you know, not being really asked about my own opinion. Mm -hmm. That's far. Nice. Yeah. And when you first moved to New York, did you ever have, you know, what some people call their lunchbox moment, you know, bringing Asian food to the cafeteria and having kids point out how different that was, or was that not an issue for you? Um, I mean, not really specifically like lunchbox, but then like, I guess people when I came, they kind of were like, oh, your English is so good. Like your parents did such a good job with you. And so I guess like, I mean, we were like 10 at the time. So I didn't really go in expecting that they would know everything about me. But then I guess it was kind of different for me to have to explain myself because when you're in Hong Kong, my school was, you know, mixed people, like European people whose parents worked in Hong Kong and then also Chinese people who lived here. And so I never really found myself having to explain where I was from or my background. And then here I was this completely kind of new thing because I was one of the first people in the class who wasn't from, a diff uh, who was from a different city and I was from a diff com completely different culture. And so having to kind of explain, like I went to international school, so I do speak English fluently. Even my teachers were like, oh wow, your English is so good. Like your parents must speak really well. And so I think, you know, over time, people have gotten kind of used to it and kind of understand more. And there are actually more kind of foreign students who come to my school now. But yeah, I think initially it was just really having to kind of explain where I came from and my culture to people. That's great. And you talk about um, languages and um, I read that you started to learn how to code when you're around six years old. Mm -hmm. And it seems like your your dad was a big part of that. Could you just share a little bit more about the role that your dad had in kind of your education and your interest in uh, computers and coding? Yeah, I think my dad really kickstarted my interest into coding. He went to college as a computer science major, and so he's always had this kind of more techie background. 
um, he was the one who's always like, and even now still is always talking about how, like Apple products are really cool. And like growing up, like Steve Jobs was my role model uh, because like I would always hear from my dad about you know how he was such a visionary and like he never learned how to code, but he still was able to come up with these amazing products. And I think that's still kind of a value that I have today, kind of being able to be you know someone who dreams big and tries to kind of put your ideas into motion. Um, and he, so he introduced me to Scratch when I was six. So kind of this kids programming. And then from there, I really kind of took initiative in terms of kind of driving my passion because um, coding was just something that my parents wanted me to try out because they saw online they thought it would be fun, like as like basically a game. And so, and then afterwards I kind of dove further into it. Um, so at home, when I came home from school, when I was at my grandmother's place, I'd actually be like kind of playing around with the laptop you know, going online, finding things. And so from there, my parents actually helped me, you know, find courses to take online to learn HTML and stuff and Java. And so, yeah, my dad really helped to launch my computer science kind of interest. Um, and initially it was really kind of not, I wasn't thinking about it in terms of like the impact that apps can make. It was really just about like, this is really fun for me. And I think it's like a math puzzle and stuff. And so, and then it wasn't really until I was like 10 when I did the Technovation Challenge um, that really got me into kind of how do I use this as a tool for good. Hmm. So in your earlier years, were grades really important or did your parents kind of guide you and plant seeds of what you, you want to be when you quote unquote grow up? Or were you really just following your curiosity and your parents supporting you in that? Yeah, I think... At, when I was at a younger age in Hong Kong, I think grades were important to me, but it wasn't like the only thing because my parents just put me a lot through like extracurriculars. Like I played piano and cello. I remember when I came home, my mom would put like the workbooks on the table. So I would have like these pages to do every day. And so, I mean, I think grades were kind of a part of my education experience, but it was also equally about what I did outside of school that wasn't necessarily graded, but my parents kind of expecting me to kind of really learn from and take away from. And so I think I kind of had like a mixed education from there, both in the classroom and out of the classroom. Um, but I think in terms of like what I wanted to do when I grew up, I think um, there's always like kind of jobs that get, earn a lot of money was always something that was talked about. I don't think it was, you know, compared to other Asian parents really forced on me. Like I never really felt the pressure to like always be a banker or always be a lawyer. But I think it was definitely like, oh yeah, look at these jobs. Like you can earn this much money in like in four years and stuff like that. But yeah, I think compared to like other Asian kids that I've met, like I wasn't really forced into a box this early. Um, I mean, I found myself in a position that I really like tech uh, on my own. Um, and so, but I think that like, you know, if I had pursued say writing or something, I think my parents would have still kind of agreed with that or maybe like found a different angle for that. But I think it wasn't as much pressure as mm. you know, stereotypically. Is. Yeah, that's great. And kind of um, transitioning into the, the emergence of the timeless app that you developed. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously you started to learn to love coding at a pretty early age. Mm -hmm. How did you actually start to apply, um, that skill set into solving this problem around Alzheimer's disease and, and helping patients who have um, Alzheimer's improve their life? Yeah, so 
I have started getting into or becoming aware of the fact that technology was like this force for social change when I did the Technovation Challenge, which was, it still is a um, girls tech entrepreneurship competition. Essentially, you enter it with your team and you develop a mobile app, like a prototype. And then you can also create a business plan around that. So, you know, how how are you going to finance this app? How are you going to raise funding? How are you going to market it? And stuff like that. And really thinking about finding a problem in your community or something even around the world and seeing how am I going to address that using technology, especially mobile apps. And I think before that, I had really seen mobile apps as just something that was a convenience. Like we, we used it every day in our lives and it helped us like, I could talk to my dad when he was at work, but I didn't really see how how it could help a lot of people. And I think that doing that technovation challenge was really what opened my eyes to that kind of possibility. Um, I didn't develop timelines for the competition, but it was afterwards that I started learning how to really develop iOS apps for real from scratch. And I realized that I really wanted to help, you know, create something that would help my grandmother because um, I really she really took care of me a lot when I was younger, you know, after school, when my parents were still working, I would go to her place and I would you know, have dinner there and talk to her and she would help me with homework. And so she was really a big part of my life. And I think having her having Alzheimer's was something that I really noticed and really wanted to address. And, you know, without creating timeless, you know, there really wasn't anything I could do personally to help her, I felt. And so I think it really was then that I realized I could combine those two skills. And for folks who don't know, can you share a little bit more about Timeless, the app, how it works, um, what the key features are? Sure. So Timeless is a first-of-its-kind mobile app that I started developing about two years ago. Um, we recently just soft-launched it, actually, on the App Store. But essentially what it does is that it uses artificial intelligence face recognition in order to help Alzheimer's patients recognize the people around them. And so the key feature is updates, um, where your friends and family can actually register to be part of a patient's timeless circle, and then they can send all these photos of, say, like your events, your activities, anything that's going on to the patient in an, in an update event. And um, what Timeless will do is that it will actually use your profile picture to register that, and then it will recognize your face in the photo. So, for example, if your grandmother was scrolling through, then you could say, okay, this is Emma, your granddaughter, and it's, it'll be right, right there on the photo. And so that really makes it easier for the Alzheimer's patient to go through photos and recognize everyone. It really jogs their memory. But then the other things are also that the photos are sorted by person in a photo album. So the patient can actually go through and see all the photos that I'm in, all the photos that my mom is in. Um, and there's also uh, today where the caregiver can actually set a patient's calendar and they'll see just the upcoming events for that day with the weather um, to keep things really simple for the patient. Um, and then finally, there's contacts where the patient can you know, tap a button, just say call or text without having to remember any phone numbers. And it'll actually remind them if they call someone within the, uh, the, within, uh, the last five minutes. Because you know something that I actually found with my grandmother is that she would call a friend and then put down the phone and then she'd call again because she didn't remember that she had just called. And so you know, if um, the patient tries to call the same person uh, after five minutes, they'll actually remind them, you know, you've already called this person, do you want to call again? So those are the kind of like the key, it's five features that I have in Timeless right now. And really, I wanted it to address, you know, each of the problems that I saw that Alzheimer's patients face. 
and I'm planning on you know adding more features down the line, but this is what we have right now for our phase one. Mm. So it's really meant to be kind of the main portal or hub for communicating between the Alzheimer's patient, their family, and caregivers. Is that a, a right way to think about it? Yeah. So it's really trying to consolidate, you know, all these things that you know Alzheimer's patients, a lot of them, their uh, their loved ones would kind of try to facilitate for them because personally, a lot of these you know ideas came from things that um, my parents and we and her caregiver would kind of try to do to help her. Uh, in her day-to-day -day life, like we gave her a little iPad mini that she can, you know, look at our photos on, and we set up this whiteboard in our living room that we write down, like her address, the day of the week, um, you know, upcoming doctor's appointments, all for her, like, kind of visually to see. And so, timeless is really a way to consolidate all that and kind of put that into one place that's really easy to use for patients. Mm, that's great. And so far, uh, what feedback have you gotten from users, and uh, what are the rough plans in the next twelve months? Yeah, so right now we did a soft, we started our soft launch about three weeks ago, two weeks ago, and uh, it's been really great. Um, our users are starting to kind of sign on and kind of try out the app with their patients. Um, we've gotten a lot of feedback, you know, about, you know, uh, this area um, could be, you know, a little bit simplified or things that they would look for in the next version that we're definitely taking into account. And so it's been really helpful to really put the app into the hands of real patients because. Uh, before, I've been really developing this on my own for the past two years, raising funding for it, and really starting to kick this off about a year ago. And so it's been really exciting to see, you know, the product of that. That's great. And in doing research for this, I read one of the things that um, has been a challenge has actually been convincing venture capitalists to take your work seriously. Right. Could you yeah. share a little bit more about how that journey has been and also um, how that might have been progressing and improving in the last two years? Yes. Yeah, so over the last two years, um, what has it's been kind of a progression of kind of basically gaining a community of people who really were behind me and supported me. Um, in the beginning, I started Timeless because um, when I actually got a scholarship to do this, I had this idea and I found the scholarship that, you know, basically um, is for pursuing your passion for kids. Um, and so that's how I kind of started, you know, learning about uh, Swift and getting the tools I need for design to kind of kickstart Timeless. But then since then, it's really been about, you know, getting the mentors on my team and the funding uh, that I needed to kind of really take this onto the app store and take this into the future. Um, and so it wasn't actually until about a year ago that I actually was really lucky to win the $50,000 grand prize of the Women Who Tech Startup Challenge. Um, and that really helped me, you know, get all the development uh, help I needed and all the tools I needed to really get timeless to where it is today. But, you know, before that, I think my, the main problem was my age because I was about 13, 12 years old when I just started, you know, reaching out to people. And so I, and I initially was just cold emailing people because I knew no one who really could help me with this. And so... I kind of was emailing people, CTOs and, you know, uh, people I, I knew who had funded like women before or young startups before. And a lot of them kind of either didn't respond or some of them said like, you know, we're, we're not really interested in like helping you right now. We can't really meet your needs. And it was until I found, you know, a really close group of people. Like uh, right now I have uh, Cole Calistra, who was the CTO of Kairos, and he really helped me on the technical side. Um, Kairos now actually sponsors the facial recognition technology for Timeless. Um, also, Lilia Mandrino, uh, she was originally from Texas when I first reached out to her. Now she's based out of California, and she's been you know the UI UX designer help 
on my team. And so those were the people who really were really kind of supporting me since the beginning and really trusted in my idea and, you know, took me seriously. And so from there, it's kind of grown into, you know, the following that Timeless has now. And for listeners who don't know, how old are you right now? I'm 15 now. And have you found that um, as you've gotten more backers and, you know, you're winning more awards, that has helped with opening doors with the venture capital community, or is it still really hard? Um, I think right now, since I was about 13 and I, you know, first reached out to venture capitalists, I haven't really gone back through that uh, platform because I found that, you know, crowdsourcing and um, the tech challenge has really met my needs for now, but I'm still kind of looking into other um, options, especially because I'm not out here to make money. I'm uh, timeless runs on like a profit, not profit model. Uh, right now, actually, uh, the timeless version that's on the app store right now doesn't actually even charge you anything. But my plan was, you know, take to take the profits that I do have when I start, you know, charging for this and, you know, help putting that back into the community. So helping the underprivileged get access to my app and sponsoring their usage. And so I really wasn't aiming to earn money from this. And that's why I don't think I originally appealed to the venture capitalist community. But I think that over time, I think um, as, you know, time continues to grow and I get an even bigger following, it's probably something I would really mm. want to consider. And just to be clear, you're still a full-time student while you're working on Timeless, right? Yes, so I'm still going to school and everything. How do you balance all the workload and expectations on both sides? Yeah, so I think it's definitely been a challenge during the school year because I go to a school with a pretty rigorous like academic program, so I'm you know doing homework until really late at night, and so I've really been working on this you know during long weekends, you know spring break, winter break, and really over the summer, and so. Um, that's why actually initially I started raising funding because as a full-time student, I couldn't, you know, deal with all of the work of Timeless on my own. I definitely am still, you know, at the lead of it. I'm still kind of managing all of the development and the design that goes on and uh, taking a really major part in it. But I actually got, um, uh, someone actually I knew from my dad, uh, his name is Dennis and he is helping with the development a little bit. Um, and so really raising funding for that was my main goal back then. Um, and so it's definitely difficult, but I've kind of learned to kind of, you know, balance, um, you know, my school priorities and you know, things I want to pursue for Timeless. Mm. Have there any ever been thoughts of putting school on hold to work on this whole time? Um, not really. I mean, um, it's been really, I, I think even actually part of my, you know, Asian background is that school is really important. Um, and like, it's always your kind of your backup plan if you need anything. And so... I think dropping out of school was a risk that me and my family never really wanted to take. And so, especially because we didn't know if Timeless would go well, like, and originally I didn't think that Timeless would be doing as well as it did today. And so um, I think, you know, part of that was, you know, school is always has to be there and I mm -hmm. have to get like a full education. So but you I think, definitely like, want to finish school and go to college, presumably? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I definitely want to go to college. And I think even that will really help me with Timeless because I think what has taken me to this point is really my skills and, you know, critical thinking and, you know, being able to argue my perspective and kind of think about a whole situation and kind of evaluate what I want to take as the next steps. And especially because um, Timeless is so kind of AI oriented and software oriented, and I really want to not just, you know, um, kind of social impact oriented. And so... I really want to be able to take that as far as I can. And so in order to do that, I think, 
you know, being able to finish high school, go to college is something really important to me as well. Cool. Um, another quote that I read um, from you, which uh, really touched me is about, persever uh, per about perseverance, pardon me. And you said that perseverance is a skill that I have cultivated through reading stories, uh, which I love also um, being a reader myself. Um, can you share a little bit more about what you mean and, and maybe some examples of that? Yeah, I think um, my kind of motivation to drive through all the challenges I've faced with Timeless has really been kind of reading about people, not just people who have persevered in the tech industry or generally to become leaders, but also stories about, you know, Alzheimer's patients, because initially when I started reaching out on social media and talking about Timeless online, um, I actually, we gained like a community of like people who have who've known Alzheimer's patients, who have family who struggle with Alzheimer's or dementia or who are caregivers. And they all share those stories, you know, this would be really great, you know, for uh, my father or my uncle or you know a friend of mine who has had experienced this and so reading all those stories is really what really motivates me to keep going and to keep developing when it really seemed difficult to kind of get the support i needed to develop timeless and then even kind of hearing about stories you know from my family you know my mom was a refugee my dad you know got uh, came from hong kong to the us to go to college and so i think personally from my background of pers of my family being really persevering and also other people who are persevering through personal challenges that they're facing because of you know, uh, Alzheimer's patients has been really inspiring to me. Thank you. And um, I guess kind of switching gears and, you know, thinking about some of the listeners who might be earlier in their career and thinking about a potential move, um, what would you advise someone on how to find their passion or, you know, like their version of Timeless, you know, a project or a cause that they really care about that they should spend more time on? Yeah, I think, you know, identify something that you really is on your mind a lot or that's something that you, you kind of maybe unconsciously, but, you know, kind of really find interest in. Like when I read about tech, I always knew like when I was scrolling through my news, if I saw like an article about a tech company or something, I always took really big interest in it. Or I remember that I would always be thinking about, you know, my gra uh, my grandmother and how as a family and living really far away from my grandmother right now, um, you know, how we're coping with that. And I think that's how I really found kind of this combination that I wanted to create. So I think really thinking about, you know, what do you, are you really passionate about that you aren't really addressing right now is something a really great way to you know find that pathway. Hmm. And are there mentors or people that you look up to specifically in the Asian community? Um, I think my mom is someone that I, I really look to as a, someone in the Asian community who kind of, um, you know, even in Hong Kong, she, we, my, both of my parents, you know, work in insurance and in banking. And so I always like kind of remember that there a lot of their colleagues were like American people, European people. And like my mom always was still like, you know, went through that and was still motivated to kind of voice her opinion and kind of seeing that environment of equality despite, you know, despite of race in Hong Kong was something that I think really ingrained into my mind. That idea that like my race doesn't define how I should be speaking to other people. I think a lot of the stereotype is that, you know, the Asian people 
are usually the, you know the quiet people in the company who kind of sit in the back and code or sit in the back and you know do math or something. And so I think you know I was thinking about how no matter what race I am or where I come from, I'm still equally you know predisposed to be able to you know speak my mind or be a leader in my community. So I think you know my parents have been an inspiration mm -hmm. for that. And where do you think you get that? inspiration and courage and conviction to speak your mind because you know as as we talked about earlier that can be a process and um, especially if you're a bit more introverted um, mm -hmm. it might be easier just to stay quiet as opposed to speak up yeah i think it's really been you know experience you know experience over and over again that through my teachers you know you're rewarded for being used for speaking your point of view and i think um even like as even speaking to teachers like being able to kind of positively impact someone is like kind of, kind of through validating them speaking out and like speaking their point of view. Because I think initially um, your idea is that like, if I say something and it happens to not be exactly what my teacher is asking for, it's not gonna go down well. And mm -hmm. so I think being able to kind of experience, experience that um, moment of saying something and being rewarded for saying that I think was how I kind of learned to keep going and how I learned to kind of find my voice through that. That's great. All right, Emma, thank you so much for joining us. Um, yeah, thanks for having me, it's been really great. I just want to kind of wrap up by, by acknowledging you for all the work that you've done, um, not only uh, for the Asian community, but also um, for for young entrepreneurs everywhere. Um, the work that you you've done specifically to help Alzheimer's and, and make it much more manageable is really inspiring and we're excited to see uh, where things go from here. So Thank thanks so much for joining. Thank you. Thanks, Emma. Bye. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Asian Tech Leaders. Please share this with your friends and follow us and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting platform. Looking forward to our next conversation. And until then, take care.